0: Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> I, will, I will just say uh, for the record that uh, like, like much of what I say here about Jesus and stuff, uh, specifically about what Paul says about Jesus and stuff, um, a good bit of what I'm going to say is strongly influenced by uh, the right reverend Nicholas Thomas Wright, uh, or possibly just ripped off directly from him. Uh, many of us had the privilege of uh, being at St. Mary's on Friday to hear a couple of lectures by Bishop Tom. Uh, also Thursday night was able to see him earn an honorary doctorate from St. Mary's, which New Hope supports. Uh, he is a very influential New Testament scholar and uh, a very... Very prolific writer, and uh, it's, it was a privilege to be there. I know many of us really benefited from the time with him um, so but if I say things that he said on Friday, then um, just you know think of that to being to my credit rather than being uh, lazy because we are talking in the next month and a half or so about Abraham. Paul, in chapter 4 of Romans, is all about Abraham. And many of us, when we initially read this, we come across it, we start by saying, okay, Paul's going to say something about Abraham. And, all right, Paul's saying some more about Abraham. And, wow, Paul's really got a lot to say about Abraham. All right, Paul, what's the Abraham fetish? Because this is a lot of Abraham. It's a whole chapter of Abraham. And there are some reasons for this. One being, of course, that Paul had memorized Torah and you got basically 11 chapters from Genesis 12 to 22 about Abraham, so there's a lot of material there to use. You've also got the fact that Abraham was a celebrated figure among Paul's fellow Jews. He was a hero. But more importantly, Paul is bringing up Abraham here because Abraham is part of a story that God has been working out in the course of history. In many ways, Abraham is the beginning of an important chapter in that story. And for Paul's argument to make sense here in Romans it has to make sense in light of what God has already done in this story. And one of the tasks that Paul has before him is to convince his readers that this story does, in fact, hold together, that this transition from Abraham through all the other folks to Jesus is one that is all of a piece and is not something completely and utterly and awkwardly different. To give a little more background to this, if you flip all the way back to Matthew, I don't want anybody to feel like we're at Christmas time, but, you know, one of the problems with the beginning of Matthew's and Luke's Gospels is sometimes the only time we encounter them is around Christmas, and we can miss some of the... Elements of the story that have resonance outside of the context of that wonderful holiday. Beginning of Matthew's gospel says this is the genealogy or an account of the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Likewise, Luke and his genealogy traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham, and then beyond that, back to Adam. But identifying Jesus as in the line of Abraham was vitally important because we read throughout the Old Testament about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read about this figure, this Abraham person whom God called, and we're going to be talking more next week about the actual story. If you do want to read up on Genesis chapters 12 through 22, I'd encourage you to do that. It's actually, if you sit down and just sort of read it as a story, it, it's a good story. You know, you, you, the problem with the Bible sometimes is, you know, you feel like you have to intone it and no, you just sit down and read the thing. It's good stuff. But Abraham is, of course, the beginning of this chapter of the story in which God is calling a people to be his people, to be his unique people set apart in order to do the work of cosmic reconciliation by living well as God's people, by drawing people to God through that, by representing this new thing that God was doing. And to do that, God called this one man Abraham, and he made specific, concrete promises to him that at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul, not too much later, people were waiting to have answered. There was a sense that God had made these promises to his people, that he was going to be providing them with land that he was going to come through on his covenant promises with them, to have them be his people, to live for him independently of other powers, but dependent upon him, and for a people that was under the throne under the thumb of the Roman Empire and that in the previous several centuries had been under the thumb of a succession of various dictatorial foreign regimes this was welcome news. This was something eagerly awaited. And so you get in Luke's gospel, in these two marvelous songs in the first chapter, you get a sense of this, this hunger and this longing and this hope that now in the coming of the Messiah, somehow God is moving on to the next part of the story. The Magnificat, Mary's song. She says, after she visits her Aunt Elizabeth, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. So for Mary, there's a story that God is working out, and it's a story that goes all the way back. She's identifying herself as part of this story of God helping his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just like God had promised some 1,800 years or so before that. Then you get this other song in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel by Jesus' uncle Zechariah, who's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all all our days, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This Jesus thing is not just something that happens out of history, out of culture, out of time. This is not just this instance of some guy showing up and dying so that we all could go to heaven. This Jesus thing is part of a bigger story that God is telling. And as Paul is pointing out, Abraham is an indispensable part of this story. So having gone through in the first three chapters of Romans, his argument where he demonstrates that everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, is under the power of sin, That everybody finds him or herself before God with nothing to say in their defense. That the law, the Torah, is something that makes us conscious of our sin. That it gets, in effect, as we're going to see later on, hijacked. Something that God gave us that's good, it ends up getting hijacked and used against us. But that now apart from Torah, God's righteousness has been revealed as witnessed to by the law and the prophets. It's a righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to everybody who believes. There is a new chapter in the story. And of course, especially for his Jewish hearers, The question is, well, what does this say about the old part of the story? Right? I mean, we had this whole thing with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then you had the thing with Jacob's kids. Then you had the whole thing with Israel. Went down to Egypt, got rescued out, got put in the land, had some issues. Ended up in exile after a civil war now restored to the land somewhat but not with any real power I mean, it seems like there's a lot of stuff there paul that we got to make sense of and paul hears that he says so let's go back to the beginning of that story of god with his chosen people let's go back to abraham what what is it then paul says what should we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered about this. Now, the way you might read that is to say, so what are we going to say? Is Abraham discovered to be our forefather in the flesh? But Paul is saying, all right, let's think about this. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, then he'd have something to boast about, Right? I mean, if he'd you know, achieved for himself sufficient merit to be justified in God's sight, to be right, I guess he'd have something to his credit, right? But, of course, not before God. I mean, seriously, who really thinks that they're going to go before God and have something to try to cash in? No, what, what does Scripture say, Paul says? What do we find in Torah? What does it say in the story? It says Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Not anything Abraham did, not any of his works, some of which were impressive, some of which not so much, if you remember the story. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's remember, Paul says, anybody who works, their wages are not a gift, but they're an obligation. anybody ever get a a wrong check anybody ever get a paycheck that was wrong that seriously yeah, I mean, how do you feel when that happens? there's a sense of of profound uh, injury you're the, no that money is mine and and, and 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 it needs to I mean that like it needs to get fixed now I remember the, the first time that happened to me when I my first job out of college and they're like, oh, we'll fix it on the next check I'm thinking no, how about you fix it now? Cuz it's my money. You know, it's not like it's not like this is this is something that that you're giving me out of out of the goodness of your heart. I worked for that. I I put in my time. You owe me that. Of course this was Minnesota and they're so nice about it. They still didn't fix it till the next check. But no, if you work, you know, what, what you get is what's owed you. But, see, to anybody who doesn't do works, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, then it's that faith that's credited as righteousness. It's not something you've done. It's not something that you've earned. It's not something that God owes you. God forbid. No, it's faith. That's credited as righteousness. And Abraham is the pattern of this. David, another guy who's pretty important in the story, if we remember. Paul, in the very first few verses of Romans, talks about how Jesus was a descendant of David. This seems to be significant for him. And now Paul is quoting David from the Psalms says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And no doubt, people who had any familiarity with the story of Abraham, which would have been everybody, would have been not only thinking about Abraham as the paragon of faith, but also Abraham as the guy who tried to pass his wife off as his sister so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. David says, you know, it's a good thing Now, we have the kind of God we have. Blessed are those, this is Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I mean, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. It seems like David here is talking about his failure to confess his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will, and this is God's voice, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but Yahweh's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. So rejoice in Yahweh and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. How blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed are they whose sins Yahweh does not count against them, in whose spirit there is no deceit. People who don't think they're all right. People who don't think they have something before God. But people who know full well how desperately they need God's mercy. Who know that their sin is going to drag them down unless God has forgiven it. And then how happy, how blessed. Are they when they know that forgiveness? Abraham, Paul's saying, is the kind of guy who knew that. David's the kind of guy who knew that. But it's the forgiveness that comes not because we have somehow earned or merited or required that forgiveness. It's not like by us doing the right things, God has to forgive us. It is a gift. And as we're going to see, it is a gift that is given to those like Abraham who certainly don't earn it, but who nevertheless respond the right way to what God offers. Those who, like Abraham, respond with faith, and respond with faithfulness. It's not easy to be like Abraham. But on the other hand, it's the easiest thing in the world if what that means is that we are people who are of faith. People who have that kind of trust in God that Abraham had. We're about to take communion. And we do so in continuity not only with our brothers and sisters around the world who confess the name of Jesus. We do so in a sense in continuity with all of God's people through the centuries, through the millennia. through whom God is working out this story of salvation, this story of redemption, the story of rectification, of taking what is unjust and making it just, taking what is wrong and making it right, of taking what is filthy and making it clean. And there is nothing in us that gives us any standing to do this apart from God's grace, apart from his mercy. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into it. It is a matter of faith. So I invite you now to stand as we share together in the words of the creed. And then after that, I invite you to come forward to take the elements. The white is grape juice.